Today, we welcome back a young man, Cameron Dye, who last year was here and shared with Rise Up listeners about Generation Z. A year later, post-election year, post-2020 and the pandemic, we will again hear from him regarding his generation, Gen Z. What has changed? What has remained the same? What are they passionate about? Their morals, their hopes, political views, and how they envision the world being better for all people. Thank you for having me. So you were here a year ago. Mm -hmm. So what has changed as far as your views from this time last year until now? A lot has changed. So last year I was probably leaning a little more libertarian. That was just based off the stuff I had read, the things I had researched, and some of the people that I like to follow in the political sphere. Since then, I've done a lot more research specifically into some economic operations, specifically how government finance works, and also just economic history. And as a result of that, a lot of my views on economic policy have changed, as well as on different social policy, and just really kind of what I consider to be the moral approach to not only government, but also individual action. So last year, did your views towards the president at the time, which was President Trump, Mm -hmm. did that have a major bearing on your opinion of politics? I mean, it definitely influenced it. Trump was a very big ordeal. I think we all know that, regardless of what side you're on, whether you supported him or whether you didn't support him. So I do think that had an influence on my political beliefs, but I think that was more of a secondary type thing. It wasn't the primary influence, if that's really what you're asking. It didn't push you towards either Biden or the Libertarian Party? Not necessarily. Most of my criticisms of him kind of came out of the beliefs that I already had. I still have criticisms of him, obviously, but they're somewhat different than they used to be. How do you think this presidency is going? (laughs) I think that Biden made a lot of promises that he has yet to deliver on, along with the entire Democratic Party, and that doesn't really surprise me. I kind of consider Democrats and Republicans to be two sides of the same coin, I think they play a very similar game long-term with uh, some minor aesthetic differences. So I think they both kind of are in bed with Wall Street a bit too much, in bed with corporate interests. I think they both pursue some of these same things in regards to that. And I think Democrats kind of have a more progressive aesthetic versus Republicans who adopt a more conservative aesthetic. But once you kind of get past that and deep down into what they're actually doing, it's really not that different. Having peace in the nation and Mm -hmm. not being so divided was a major focus on Mm -hmm. where you wanted politics to go. Mm -hmm. You wanted someone who could bring the nation back together. Is that happening? I don't think that's happening. And honestly, I think as long as we have a primarily two-party system, I don't see how that could ever be the case. Because I think the two-party system inherently breeds tribalism, and that's going to cause conflict. And I also think another issue with the two-party system is it really removes accountability for politicians. A common comparison I like to use is, imagine if the American economy was controlled by two corporations alone. 
it'd be an outcry because we know that monopoly produces all sorts of negative consequences, one of the biggest ones being a lack of innovation. And I think the same thing is happening in the political sphere today. I think you have two parties that really their only objective is to get their followers to hate the other side enough to vote for them. And they don't really have to be accountable to the people at the end of the day. All they have to do is generate enough hatred and enough resentment towards the other side to get themselves into office. And I think that's a big reason why we haven't seen enough true structural changes in the United States over the past several decades is because these politicians generally run on a similar platform every year. Republicans want to come in, they want to cut taxes. Democrats want to come in, they want to raise taxes on the wealthy. And it's really the same story each and every year. And then every year it flip-flops and gets reversed. But no real change has happened in a very long time. And I think a big reason for that is because of the political duopoly we're currently under. So how would you change it? One of the big things that I think needs to happen is that we need to address really... Okay, so there are a few different things. So the first problem, in my opinion, right now is how these candidates finance their campaigns. So right now there's unlimited campaign financing. So pretty much big corporate interests or wealthy individuals can come in and they can, they can form these, these groups and what that allows them to do is donate unlimited amounts to whatever political candidates they want. And I think that kind of reinforces this two-party system because they know that regardless of what party gets in there, they're going to have someone that they are, quote-unquote, friends with, someone that's going to be friendly to them. You take a look at independent candidates, and they really don't receive a lot of that funding or financing from these corporations because they might not be as friendly to them as Republicans or Democrats might be. And another thing... Fundamentally, it's a narrative that we've talked about in this country. If you say that you're going to vote for a third party, pretty much everyone around you says, well, you're just wasting your vote. And as long as we accept that and we don't push back on that and say, no, it is my vote, we need to do better, we need to demand better, and the two-party system isn't going to cut it because the two parties that brought us here cannot get us out of here. So I think until we can really change that narrative, it's going to be the same problem going forward. Do you have your eye on anyone? on any particular politicians? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily. A lot of the people I follow are more so commentators and economists more so than individual politicians. Around next election cycle, I'd have to take a look. But as of right now, not really. There are some people that are on the fringes of the Democratic Party that I kind of respect. But aside from that, not necessarily. Let's talk about cronyism. Okay. I know in from what I have witnessed and what I have studied and what I have read, for one, lobbying is a major mm -hmm. concern mm -hmm. in America. There's too many self-interests. Elaborate on that. What are your views on that? Yeah, so I think that's fundamentally one of the biggest problems in America, and it has been for a long time, and it's one that doesn't get talked about enough, right? We always want to talk about minor little changes. That's what politicians promise. They say, oh, well, we'll increase the minimum wage, or we'll cut taxes, or we'll raise taxes. But one of the biggest structural issues in the United States is cronyism, in my opinion. It's the big reason why a lot of things don't get done. It's a big reason why our economy is rigged in favor of the wealthy and the working class seemingly can't catch a break. And it's because of things like lobbying. It's because of things like the unlimited campaign financing that I already talked about. When you have 
wealthy corporations that can come in and finance campaigns, it gives the wealthy a severely disproportional influence in a democratic system. You have a few people that can, through their money, contribute more to an election than millions of people's votes. And I think we should build an economy where votes count for more than dollars. And I, I well, a political system, rather. I think we really have to get to that point because right now, especially in this social media age, your ability to finance your campaigns on social media is really going to determine how successful you are. So that really incentivizes politicians to generate as much money as possible, which inevitably leads to them getting in bed with corporate interests. So what is your solution? Well, for one, I think that we need to end unlimited campaign financing. I think that that is genuinely just a horrible idea. I think it's inevitably going to lead to cronyism. There's no other way to look at it. I think that corporations should not be able to donate to political campaigns because at the end of the day, government does not exist to serve corporations. It exists to serve people. It exists to serve the citizens. So I think because of that, citizens should be the only unit that are capable of donating corporations. So I think only individual donations should be allowed, and I think that we should have caps on that, which we already do, and they shouldn't be so exceedingly high so that the wealthy still have a disproportional impact. I don't think that billionaires should be able to decide what politicians are able to do, more so than the millions of people whose everyday lives are affected by the decisions that are being made in Washington. So how do we untangle ourselves from the current structure and the current system? A lot of that's just got to happen at the legislative and regulatory level. And that's going to start by getting in politicians that are going to stand up to Wall Street and they're going to stand up to the status quo and really say, hey, I know this is the way things have always been done, but that's not working for everyday Americans. And because of that, something real has to happen. Something actually has to change beyond just tax rates or interest rates or you know, funding a few different social welfare programs. We have to take a deeper look at what's going on and really fix the real structural issues, which a lot of people just aren't talking about. Well, not to go back to Trump, but, you know, his slogan was, I'm going to drain the swamp. Mm -hmm. And so one party applauded him for that, and the other party resented him for that. Mm -hmm. So if someone comes in and wants to change how lobbying is done, and clear things up so that the average American has as much say yeah. as a billionaire, would it not just be the same pattern repeated again where some will be in favor and some will not? And especially the people that have the money right now and who represent power mm -hmm. will be ultimately opposed to that. Mm -hmm. So what's your solution with that? Well, I think a lot of it's going to start with the working class of America really waking up and saying, hey, I'm done with the two-party politics. We need to have a movement for the people. And I don't think we've had that for a long time in America. We haven't had a true labor movement in America for a very, very long time. Instead, everything's become so politicized and you have to fit into one category or the other. I think that working class people need to wake up and realize they have more in common with each other than they do with Democrats or Republicans because the struggles they face every day are the same. Every working class American is feeling the impact of rising health care costs, rising housing costs. They're feeling the impact of stagnated wages since the 70s. And these are all things that can be fixed. They can be addressed. But neither party is really taking action to do anything about it. Instead, they're just pointing fingers saying, well, the reason you can't 
can't earn as much money is because that Republican or that Democrat is taxing you too much. And then Democrats say, well, that Republican gives money to Wall Street. That's why you can't earn as much money. The fact of the matter is both parties have contributed to the system that we're in. And because of that, we have to look outside of those parties in order to fix it. And I think that starts like I said, a real working class movement in America. And I think that if we can start getting that narrative out there and really start pushing it and talking about it, I think that people will wake up to it. And I think that Trump kind of tapped into that a little bit. And I think that's Mm -hmm. a big reason why he got elected. Mm -hmm. Because working class people in this country were struggling. They felt politicians didn't represent their interests. They looked at Washington and saw nothing but, you know, corporate mouthpieces. And they thought Trump was the guy to do something about that. Unfortunately, I think... Trump was more talk than he was action, especially in regards to that, because his whole life he had been, you know, a member of that wealthy class, and he had friends in that wealthy class, and he may have talked about draining the swamp, but for him, a lot of that had more to do with getting people out of his personal circle that didn't agree with him more than it did making actual structural changes to the government and the economy, which is where I think we need to go. Well, and we are targeting the president in our Mm -hmm. conversation right now to have the ultimate solution. Yeah. But uh, Very Congress... Congress has a lot more to do with it as well. Yes. Yeah. So, and a lot of them right now, they're, they're serving terms sometimes. Mm-hmm. They have become lifetime career politicians yeah. who have benefited from the system mm-hmm. and will continue to benefit from the system until they are voted out. So we just need re-education in America and a new we need to give people a better story than the Democrats and Republicans have given us over the past 40 years and I think that story's out there and there are people talking about it and people are starting to wake up to it but right now it is not as mainstream or widespread as it needs to be I think in large part the working class does feel that something is wrong you know I mean, that's why Trump got elected. They know something's wrong, but I don't think they really know where to place that anger and that frustration. And I think that we can point them in the right direction by educating them, by telling them, hey, this is why wages have stagnated. This is why jobs are going overseas. It's not immigrants. It's not helping poor people. But mainstream media is not going to tell this story. No. So how do you get the story out? It's got to be individuals. It can't come from the top down because it fundamentally will not. Like you said, mainstream media is not going to tell it because most of mainstream media is owned by massive corporations, completely influenced by that. It's got to be a grassroots movement, fundamentally. It has to be individual people stepping up and taking action. It has to be you know, powerful activism. Who or what is your biggest influence right now? Hmm. Yeah, that's kind of a tough one. There are a few different people. There are a few economists that I really like to follow because I think they have a lot of insight into really what's going on. One of those people is Stephanie Kelton. She's an economist that served with Bernie Sanders on his campaign. And she recently wrote a book called The Deficit Myth, which really dives into the monetary system of the United States, describing how it actually works and describing once you understand how it works, that opens a lot more potential solutions opens up to you. So she's probably one of the biggest ones. There are a few other people on Twitter that I like to follow, some people on YouTube, but by and large, probably her. She really kind of opened up my eyes to a lot of these problems. She was the impetus. Do you think socialism, that term, is misunderstood in America? Yeah. 
I think the term socialism is weaponized deliberately by politicians because they know that there's a lot of emotional baggage with it. There has been ever since the Cold War because there was so much U.S.-based propaganda talking about how evil communism was. And, I mean, that was true, but I think they took it to such an extent that the term socialism became correlated with the government doing literally anything, and that's simply not true. The proper definition of socialism, it is a system in which the government actually comes in and takes over private businesses, and there is no serious politician in the United States that is recommending that. There's no one, not even the people that are currently called socialists, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders. These are people who embrace social democratic policies, which is actually what the U.S. used to have back in the post-war period. It's what Scandinavian countries and some European countries currently follow. And it is nothing more than a fundamentally capitalist system that takes its problems into account. So it takes the issue of wealth inequality, income inequality, it takes into account the problems that markets are inherently very unstable, right? You have these massive boom and bust cycles. It takes those problems into account and provides pragmatic solutions on how to deal with them, which come from the government. And a lot of people mistake that for socialism. It's not socialism. It's just a more compassionate, more stable form of capitalism that doesn't allow the working class to get absolutely crushed under the boot of corporations. So what programs do you think the government should have to take care of people? Mm -hmm. Okay, so to really understand these programs, I first kind of really need to talk about the issues that come with market-based capitalism, right? So market-based capitalism is the best solution we've ever had to the central problem of economics, which is how do we best distribute limited resources with alternate uses to their most efficient ends, right? So a market-based system is the best solution we've ever come up with that, but it's not all good. So the first problem with market-based systems is that, like I already mentioned, they're inherently unstable and pro-cyclical. So you have these periods of massive growth, a massive boom, and then that gets unstable and then it devolves into a massive bust. And normally during those periods, the wealthy end up doing all right, but the working class see drastic reductions in their quality of living. They see their wealth absolutely stripped away. So that's one of the big problems of market-based systems. Another one is that markets on their own cannot guarantee full employment or price stability. They're, they're simply incapable of doing so. So that's another problem. And probably the third problem that I'd want to talk about is markets have a tendency to produce massive wealth inequality over time. And that wealth inequality actually has very real economic and social consequences. So, for example, and we've already kind of talked about this, when you have someone who has more wealth than millions of Americans combined, that gives them a tremendous amount of influence over the political system, right? So when you have people with that much wealth, it makes the political system itself unstable because it gives them more power than entire swaths of working class people. And then on top of that, it also has economic influences because the economy grows through spending, right? If you want to stimulate economic growth, you want to stimulate demand, you want to stimulate spending. But when you have that much wealth that's locked away and hoarded, that's money that's not being used to go out and demand products and services. So it actually limits economic growth. So those are three really big problems of markets that can be solved. And there are, there are solutions to each of those problems that we can talk about. So the first one 
relating back to the instability of markets, a lot of that comes from the financial sector because as the boom goes, they get more and more risky, they take on more and more leverage until eventually it reaches a point where it's unsustainable and it all implodes. That's what we saw in 08, that's what we saw in the 90s, that's what we saw in the Great Depression in the 20s. It normally starts in the financial sector. There was an economist, Hyman Minsky, and he recommended that there needed to be much, much tighter regulations on the banking sector. Uh, They shouldn't be able to take excessive leverage. They shouldn't be able to take excessive risks. They should be very limited in what they're allowed to do so that that way it doesn't become so bloated and so leveraged that it becomes unstable and wipes out the whole economy. It seems to me that the more money and power you have, Mm -hmm. you do not fear taking a risk because the government will bail you out and there's a, there's a, example of it right now and you know you know what yeah, I'm Jeff talking Bezos. yes yeah. and so you know the average american their small risks who is going to bail them out mm-hmm. it it doesn't happen there is such an inequality present in our in our country and it's all based upon income mm-hmm. in- income and wealth I did not come up with this term, and I can't really remember who I heard it from, so I can't properly credit it. But they said that in this country, we have rugged capitalism for the poor and socialism for the rich. Hmm. And I think that's, that's very true. It's time that we build an economy that works for more than just the wealthy, right? We need an economy that really takes care of the working class, because if the working class prospers, everyone's going to prosper. It puts more money back into... That's exactly mm-hmm. right. We, we already covered that spending is what stimulates the economy, mm-hmm. right? And who spends more than anyone else? Who has the highest desire to consume? It's the working class, right? Because they need more things than the wealthy do. So if you can get more money into the hands of the working class, that's going to stimulate new businesses to go out there and increase production to try and capture that money in, in exchange for products and services. And that's how you grow a modern economy. But instead, for the past four or five decades in this country, we've embraced the policies of neoliberalism, which were really ushered in by Ronald Reagan. And really the idea behind that was that if you get more money into the hands of the wealthy, they'll turn around and reinvest that into new products and services, and it'll grow the economy. But that's really not what happens. The wealthy only reinvest if they expect more future sales. And future sales are only possible if consumers, which is mainly the working class, have disposable income to spend. So if you want to grow the economy, get more money into the hands of the working class. And right now, we simply do not embrace that philosophy. And that is what a lot of people on the left are pushing for. And when I say the left, I don't mean Democrats, because the Democrats really aren't that left. They're kind of the same right-wing capitalist, just with a woke aesthetic is how I like to describe it. Well, when we also talk about socialism, we have a, a fragment of society who would take advantage of that and not work. And employment is a well, merely because okay. of the pandemic is an issue right now. Mm-hmm. But there will be some who will, who will always be opposed to someone receiving something for nothing when they are either blue-collar or white-collar workers working a nine-to-five. Mm-hmm. So address that. Well, that, Im- that depends entirely on what policies we're actually talking about, 
right? So the policy I advocate for, my biggest what you would call social welfare program that I think we should do, actually requires you to work. It's called the Federal Jobs Guarantee. And basically, and this is an idea that's been talked about for a long time. FDR wanted to do this way, way back. He thought that everyone in the United States should have a right to employment. And the Federal Job Guarantee is nothing more than an employer of last result last resort. So it's not going to take away jobs from the private sector. It's going to be solely for people that cannot find employment in the private sector. And it's going to allow them to be productive members of the community while earning a living wage, at the same time gaining real skills and experience that will make them desirable to be hired into the private sector out of this job guarantee. And the job guarantee has been implemented in some other Latin American countries with pretty large success. And at the end of the day, I think jobs are better than welfare. But right now, because of the way our economy is structured, there are literally not enough jobs for everyone that wants one. And there's nothing we can do about that until we start making real structural changes to the economy. And a federal job guarantee is a great way to go about doing that. Do we need to keep jobs here in America? Absolutely. What about outsourcing? Like to other countries? Mm -hmm. A big reason that we do that right now is a result of the free trade policies that we pursued with other countries. We do not have proper restrictions on capital flight overseas, right? So it is far too easy for billionaires and these massive corporations to take their wealth, throw it over the ocean into some other country, and hoard it there. And also, we don't have enough restrictions on exploiting overseas workers, because that's really what this is about, right? It's not about companies wanting to be as efficient as possible. It's about them wanting to pay their workers as little as possible. So they go over and these, they find these countries where the labor market is deregulated, where workers don't have a lot of rights or protections, and they exploit them, point blank. And they usually exploit the environment while they're doing it. It is very crooked, and there are measures we can take to prevent that. And one of the ways we could pursue that is by having a more progressive foreign policy that says, hey, you know, you can't, you got to treat your workers better. You have to take more care of your environment. And simply just not allowing corporations to do that as often because it is exploitative and it does have an impact, a negative impact, not only on people here in the U.S., but also people abroad. Because most of the times these are people working in sweatshop conditions, earning borderline slave wages, really just slaving away day and night just for us to have, you know, a cheap pair of Nikes. And it's, it's not morally defensible, and it does have a real economic impact as well. So what about the stimulus? Do you agree or disagree with, one, the stimulus that was given to mm. average citizens, and then also the incentives given to corporations during the pandemic? Mm -hmm. So whenever you talk about stimulus, it's... It, <laughs> It's too hard to discuss it as a black and white issue, like you either agree with it or you don't. I think the idea of providing stimulus to citizens during the pandemic was very well informed. I think that the stimulus package as a whole was very flawed. I think far too much of that money went to bailing out massive corporations. And the idea behind it is that it would allow them to continue to employ the people. And that's not what happened. The corporations took that money, they fired their workers, and then they bought back stock to artificially inflate their share prices. And that shouldn't come as a surprise. We should not be doling out free money to private companies. There's no reason we should be doing that. We should be investing that money into the people and then let them make their own purchasing decisions about which companies they want to support. In your opinion, what are the problems of the present economy and how would you fix it? 
Yeah, so we really have a few fundamental problems. So one is one is stagnated wages, right? You hear about that one a lot. They've been stagnated since about the 70s. A big reason for that is a deregulated labor market and the disappearance of unions. So one of the biggest policies I would like to see pursued is, one, the federal job guarantee, which I've already discussed. That would make a much tighter labor market. Because right now, a big reason that so many wages are so low is because there is this permanent buffer stock of unemployed people. And companies know that their workers kind of have to accept whatever they offer or else they can fire them and just go for someone else go find someone else who's unemployed. But if you have a federal job guarantee, it incentivizes employers to create better working conditions to lure people out of the public working market into the private sector. So that's the first policy to pursue. The second is we need to introduce new labor regulations, specifically regarding unions, that will allow workers to collectively bargain. Because at the end of the day, you can't negotiate if you can't really walk away. You can't negotiate if it's just you up against you know this massive corporation. You need to be able to band together with your fellow workers and demand better pay, better working conditions, and better benefits. And we also need some other regulations in regard to you know guaranteed paid maternity leave, more sick time off. These are policies that have already been implemented in many of the Scandinavian countries. There's really no reason we can't implement them here. So as a young man, and you are Generation Z, mm-hmm. what do you think about your generation's work ethic? I think Generation Z sometimes gets more slack than they deserve. And I think it's been that way, you know, forever. I think millennials got hated on by the generation that came before them, and so on and so forth. I just think it's different. We're dealing with a different set of problems that we're aware of than previous generations. I do give us some credit for that because I do think a lot of Gen Z is more interested in these problems than prior generations have been, and they actually want to make a change. I do think that sometimes they might be a bit entitled, but generally I'd say I have to give us some credit where that's concerned because I see a lot more people my age that are being more outspoken about political and economic issues. And, of course, they're not going to know everything. I don't know everything. I mean, we're all still young. But we're trying, and I think some credit is warranted for that. You had just entered your freshman year of college. You were living in a dorm when news of the pandemic really became an issue in America. So come around February or March, what did that do to campus life, and what did it do to the individual who was trying to get their education? Well, for me, I mean, our campus shut down. That was a really, that was a really strange time, mainly just, we'd never experienced anything like that. You know, it felt like you were living through a historic event, which looking back on it, I suppose it was. But at that point, we didn't really know how serious any of this Mm -hmm. stuff was, you know? I remember I was sitting in the library and I was working on something, and I heard my phone go off, and I check it, and it's an email from I, I, maybe the dean or just some higher up on the campus saying that the campus was going to be closing because of, you know, the pandemic. And I remember walking around campus for a few days there. It was scary because, like I said, we didn't really know that much about the virus. We'd all seen videos of, like, people falling over dead in China, which, looking back on it, wasn't really 
<laughs> legit videos. But at the time, it was scary. You know, we didn't know if we were living through the next, you know, Black Plague or something like that. And you're really hesitant and weary. And the cafeteria, you know, didn't let us use plates and we had to social distance. And it was just a whole mess. But it was distracting, you know. I mean, there's no way it couldn't be because no one really knew what was coming next. We weren't sure if we were going to be there in a month. We weren't sure if classes were going to be canceled. We didn't know how bad this was going to get. We didn't know if our friends and family were going to be dead in a few months. I mean, it was it was a scary time. Come to find out, some of those fears were severely overblown. But at the time, we didn't know, you know. What impact do you think that had on those wanting an education going forward, having gone through that? I mean, I'm I'm sure it probably dampened their spirits a bit. I know there were a lot of foreign exchange students there that felt trapped because they couldn't go home. All their friends were leaving campus and they were kind of there alone. And I'm sure there are a lot of people that ended up having to drop out or kind of put those dreams on hold simply because of the circumstances. You know, they weren't allowed to be on campus. And if they weren't in their dorms, they couldn't afford to have, you know, an apartment, so they might have had to go back home. I mean, it really impacted a lot of people in a very serious way. And I'd be, in- I'd be interested to see some studies about, you know, maybe how that impacted future graduation rates or retention rates or stuff like that. I'm sure some data about that will come out in the coming few years, but I, I couldn't really tell you, you know. But just based off my assumptions, I'm sure there were a few people who had to put their education on hold possibly indefinitely because of the impact of COVID. What is the attitude towards sex and relationships for your generation? I want to be careful not to overgeneralize because obviously whenever you're talking about something, a group as vague as simply when you were born, you're going to get a lot of people in that that believe different things. But I'd say the overwhelming ethic is kind of just that Specifically in college, and this might just be a college thing, I'm not really sure, but kind of just the idea that, you know, sex isn't really that important. That there aren't really consequences to sleeping around if you think it's fun. I'd say really that more than anything. There are a lot of people that feel that they don't really need to pursue relationships as much. It's just about, you know, kind of having fun and trying different things and just having experiences. And I think there's something to be said about that, but there also are concerns with that from time to time. But yeah. Do you think having a proper relationship has been modeled for your generation? Oh, gosh. I think that might be too... That might vary too much on a case-by-case basis. I think that more has to do with people's individual experiences more so than generational experiences. What is the biggest challenge facing your generation? I'd say we have a few. A lot of the economic and structural issues we've talked about we're inheriting, and it's taking a walloping toll on millennials, and Gen Z will be in that spot before we know it. It seems like wages are growing slower and slower. Prices are going higher and higher. And a lot of us aren't happy about it. And we're constantly being told by, you know, some of the older, for example, baby boomers, to just suck it up and work hard. But the fact is that 
the circumstances they were dealing with are not ones that they dealt with. They grew up in an era when the U.S. was coming out of the social democratic model, when there were a lot more opportunities, when things like an education and housing weren't so ridiculously expensive. And Gen Z is kind of coming into a world where it feels like we're behind, you know. If you want to take, if you want to have opportunities, you have to go on massive debt. Less and less people are buying homes, they're having to rent. It's kind of a nightmare. And then we are also dealing with other crises that, such as climate change and stuff that we feel are being left at our feet that no one's really wanting to do anything about. And it's pretty stressful for a lot of people in my generation. And I think that's why you see so much agitation about it and so much resentment because they feel like they're being handed, uh, you know, a damaged bag of goods and just being told, suck it up, this is what you got. And a lot of people just don't accept that. Are they fearful? Part of it might be fear, but I think part of it's also anger because they know it could be better. And they look around and they can't find a compelling reason why beyond corruption and greed. And I think that rightfully angers a lot of them. I think sometimes they direct that anger in inappropriate ways. I think sometimes they get too carried away with that and they might end up being more radical than necessary. They might get too carried away with some of the changes they want to make, but I can't fault them for the feeling that they've been placed into a system where it's rigged against them. If that makes sense. You just turned 20 Mm -hmm. at the end of last month. If you had the influence, what realization would you want your generation to come to? This is going to be vague, but I would simply say demand more and demand better because there's no reason why the people we entrust with power in this country can't do more with it. I think it's time that we really start demanding that we have a government and an economy and a political system that is built for people, not just the interests of the wealthy or the interests of corporations or massive conglomerates or lifetime politicians. I think that this generation might be the one to start those movements that I was talking about because I think that We are collectively very pissed off. And if that energy can be harnessed in a productive way beyond just screaming on Twitter, which I think we're all guilty of, I'm guilty of it. But if we can actually do something about it, I think that we can really get something done. So that's what I'd say, you know, Generation Z, you have power to enact change. You have power um, to demand more and to demand better. It's time to seize that power and really put it to use. Do you think... There's trust issues. Oh, there's there's lots of trust issues. So who do they trust? Who should you trust? I think you should trust people that have demonstrated that they are trustworthy. People that have actually followed through on the promises that they've made. People whose beliefs align with yours. And people who, once they are put in positions to take action on those beliefs, have actually done so and haven't become corrupted. Not to get too political here, but this was a big issue I had with Joe Biden throughout the election, is he was making a bunch of promises, but if you look back throughout his political career, it seems like his beliefs changed with whatever was popular at the time. And I don't think you can really trust someone like that, because it's obvious that they don't want to get into office to enact change, or else they'd have a more unified set of beliefs that they want to act on. Instead, their beliefs change so that they can get into office. 
and I don't trust people who want power simply for the sake of glory or grandeur or status. What do you think Generation Z values? I'd say opportunity, diversity, inclusion. quality and probably I'd say Gen Z does have a moral code it might be different than that of the past because it's not necessarily a conservative moral code but it is a moral code we do not like to see people that are being exploited or taken advantage of I mean I think that's why you see so much anger by Gen Z about so many things because it seems like almost everywhere we look we're seeing people that are being mistreated we're seeing systems that are rigged in the favor of some at the expense of others, and I think that we're sick and tired of it. Do they feel the prior moral code of their parents failed? I mean, aspects of it. I mean, I think there are aspects of it that are shared as well. Obviously, some of the basic tenets, like don't hurt other people, that sort of stuff. But I feel like a lot of the values that prior generations have held have somewhat been used to justify systems that are dysfunctional, right? So values of radical individualism have been used to justify not helping groups of people that need it, just saying, well, just get ahead, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. People in my generation are very cynical of that because they know that the systems are arranged in such a way to where it is very hard to do that. You know, America is supposed to be the land of opportunity, but there aren't even enough jobs for everyone that wants one. That's not opportunity. That's not equal opportunity. It's not equal opportunity that some people are so poor that they can't afford health care that would allow them to go out and get a job. You know, I mean, these are real systemic issues that we have to take seriously. And I think one thing that Gen Z is waking up to is that we can keep that American individualism while also recognizing that the necessary counterpart to that is social responsibility. Because if you just focus on the individualism, it devolves into greed and corruption. And if you just focus on the social responsibility, it devolves into tribalism. You need a marriage of both for a functional and stable society over time. You need people to have incentives to better their own lives, but you also don't want them to suffer unnecessarily. And you need people to take responsibility for their actions and the effect that their actions can have on the widespread community. You know, when you have billionaires that are justifying their extreme wealth by saying, well, I worked really hard for this. Yes, that's true. But you also have a social responsibility to not engage in action that destabilize the entire society. You know, so it's conversations like that we need to start having. And we need to stop breaking things into this dichotomy between, well, you're either individualist or collectivist. You're either capitalist or socialist. Those dichotomies are no longer useful. We've tried both. Neither work on their own. We need to find some sort of solution that incorporates the best elements of both. Okay, so if you are, let's say, resentful of someone who has more, mm -hmm. but do you not have a personal responsibility for the decisions that you make in your life, mm -hmm. for the education that you're going to stay with, for the grades that you're going to make during school, the efforts you're going to make to graduate, and then you referenced, you, we don't believe in, we can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Well, that's, that's not exactly what I was saying. I was saying that that messaging, it is good advice 
on an individual basis, right? So if you're talking to someone... Well, I think that message began is that when you put in the work and you put in the time and you put in the effort, you can achieve more as opposed to when you don't. If you don't try, you will fail. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's why I said I'm not completely collectivist. There is room for individualism. And the individual is the primary unit of society, right? But in America, we have not talked enough about the social responsibility. That is a necessary part of any functioning society. And we simply haven't talked about it enough, right? So I do believe that if you work harder, you're going to do better than if you don't, right? I mean, that's common sense. If I was giving advice to someone, I'd say, you need to work your ass off and you need to make good decisions. I mean, that's, that's good advice. That's what people should be doing. But the fact is, if everyone in America did that, there is not enough opportunity to absorb that. And there are people that are suffering unnecessarily due to the results of certain systems we have. There's no reason that we can't have free health care. There's no reason that working class people should have to come out of pocket with vast sums of money that they've earned in order to pay for common medical procedures, right? There are things we can do to alleviate unnecessary suffering. I'm not saying we take care of everyone, no one has to work. I'm not talking about communism. I'm talking about a capitalist system that is compassionate and that values human beings and treats them as such and where the government does what they can to make situations better for people, to make sure that everyone has the opportunity. And then we can talk about you working hard to seize that opportunity. But we have to make sure the opportunity is there first. And I'm I'm not convinced there's enough of it. I mean, systemically, we have more unemployed people than we have available jobs in this country on a persistent basis. That's a direct result of the economic policy we pursue. The Federal Reserve, every time unemployment gets to a certain point, actually jacks up interest rates to prevent unemployment from falling to a certain percentage. That's a very centrally decided metric in our society, and it causes a lot of suffering for people. And there are things the government can do to fix that. And I think that's what we we really need to talk about. What are you reading? Who are you paying attention to? Well, the book I'm currently reading right now is actually called Procrastination. It's by a few scientists. I can't remember their names because it was co-written by like four different authors. But they are, they're psychologists. I don't remember what school they're from, but uh, they're all PhDs. They wrote a book called Procrastination, and it goes into the psychological roots of procrastination, not only biologically, but also due to past experiences. It tries to explain why you procrastinate tricks and methods you can use to stop procrastinating and also just the impacts that procrastination can have on your life it's a very good book i would highly recommend it because you find out that procrastination is actually this extremely complex psychological issue some of it is biologically determined and some of it is determined by your past experiences and it can be motivated by a lot of different things it can be motivated by fear or a need to feel in control or a variety of other things. And I think once you understand a problem, only then can you solve it. So I would highly recommend that book for anyone that struggles with, you know, putting things off. And I think we all do that from time to time. Closing thoughts to your generation. To my generation. You know, it's probably going to be a rehash kind of what, of what I said before. I think that my generation is more aware 
maybe even too aware of problems. And I think it's causing a lot of stress and anxiety because previous generations just simply did not have access to the wealth of information that we have now. I mean, pretty much anything bad that happens in the world, we know about now. And my generation has grown up in that environment. So I think that we are hypersensitive to the fact that the world can be a very mean and dangerous place at times. But I, I think that provides an opportunity for us to really demand change. Because like I said, only when you're aware of a problem and how it's caused can you solve it. And I think that my generation is more aware of more problems now. And that puts us in a very unique position to demand solutions. So I would say Generation Z, get out there, get active, do what you can to demand a positive change in the world. And I think that if we all do that, I think it could happen. In a peaceful manner? Oh, yeah, a peaceful manner. Don't go burning down uh, private businesses and homes and residential neighborhoods. No, definitely the peaceful activism. Demand more from your politicians and be loud and be vocal about it. Closing thoughts, speaking to those who need to understand your generation. I would say have some compassion for Generation Z. We're really out here trying, and we are in a unique position to where the systems that have worked for people in the past are beginning to degrade and fall apart. And that is a very chaotic world to find yourself in as a young adult. And we're trying to navigate it and we're trying to figure it out. We're exposed to more of the violence and the greed and the corruption than any other generation before us. And although that could have desensitized us, I think in many ways it has made us more sensitive to these problems because we know that they're so widespread and we're able to talk about it, we're able to be vocal about it so have some compassion we're probably going to make some missteps along the way anytime you try and change something as complex as society or the economy you are always running the risk of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. but uh, change has to happen and I think that we're on the path to that and I think Gen Z really wants that so just talk to us, you know and we might get aggressive and a bit agitated. But I think that can also serve us in the long run as well because we're not going to put up with it for any longer. What are your goals for the future? Because that has changed too from a year ago. Yeah, my goals for the future. So I'm a real estate agent, um, primarily focused on the listing side. So I like to list people's homes and get them sold for them. So I want to build up that business. And at a certain point in the future, whenever I feel that I've saved enough money, I would like to go back to school for law, probably starting off in political science. And I would eventually like to get into politics because I'm deeply interested in that subject. And I think I have a lot to bring to the table, especially by the time that rolls around. Well, I hope you achieve everything that you dream of mm -hmm. in this life and more. Thank you for being Thank here. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Rise Up with Julie Baumgartner. Thank you for listening today. Rise up and let's be the best that we can be. And listen to this podcast that will both motivate and educate. Thank you 